Hello, this is Reverend John Turner. Welcome to our Mindfulness Podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. And so we will be getting underway today with our program. The Buddha left home at 29 years of age to seek the way and to realize awakening. It took him six years of everyday consistent practice until at 35, he realized awakening under the Bodhi tree. And then from 35 to 80, he taught and began to develop the Buddhist Sangha. So in the Buddhist tradition, we have 45 years of teachings from the Buddha. And it's kind of a wealth of uh, texts so much so that a very famous Buddhist scholar, her name is Jan Nadier, uh, I think she's at Berkeley now, retired, she estimated that there's 500,000 pages in the Mahayana Buddhist canon. That's an astronomical number. I always think she meant words or sentences or paragraphs, but I've gone back and checked and rechecked the quote. It's pages. So 500,000. It sounds even more when you say, half a million pages. So, you know, to read through the canon would be 10,000 pages a year for 50 years. I think I could read 10,000 pages a year, but not for 50 years. I don't have that much time. And also, I think a lot of the texts haven't been translated into English, or if they are, the translations may not be good. So there's a real issue in Buddhism in general of too much texts. And another issue beyond just the volume of it is that when it came into China from India, it was in a foreign language. It was in Sanskrit. So the Chinese had 500,000 pages of Sanskrit to translate into Chinese. And a solution or an approach or a strategy was rather than studying Buddhism breadth first, you know, instead of trying to read everything an inch deep, Chinese Buddhist schools decided that they would take a depth-first approach. And so different schools in China began to focus on individual texts or a set of texts, claiming that it was the most representative of the Buddhist teachings, or one could focus on this set and realize awakening. So it's not that all the texts aren't important, but just out of necessity, focus was necessary. And so this happened in Zen, it happened in Tendai, happens in Tibetan Buddhism. It also happens in Pure Land Buddhism. And the three texts we focus on in the Pure Land tradition is the smaller sutra or the Amida Kyo, the Amida Sutra. There's another sutra that goes by three names. I think originally it was called the Contemplation Sutra. Then I noticed scholars started calling it the Meditation Sutra. And I think the most recent naming of it is the Visualization Sutra. So, you know, you can tell we even have trouble coming up with the right name for the text. So scholars thought it was a dealing with contemplation, then they refined the definition to meditation, and then they realized it really is a visualization text. And then finally, the one we focused most on out of the three is the larger sutra. And in the larger sutra, it's a narrative, it's prose, but sprinkled throughout, suddenly you'll find a section where every sentence is, say, four characters or every sentence is five characters. And that's a tip-off that you've come across a verse or a poem 
And so these have been extracted because they're very convenient to chant, right? They have a very regular structure. And two of the main verses that are in the larger sutra is called the Jusege. It's 220 kanji characters. In our service book, they're romanized so that an English person can read them. It uses an English alphabet. But there's 220 kanji characters represented in terms of sound written in English. And then the other one we chant a lot is called the Sambutsuge, and it is 320 kanji characters. So for the Jusege, every line is five characters, and for the Sambutsuge, every line is four characters. And the way they fit into the larger sutra is there is a seeker named Dharmakara who uh, has a, a, an extremely important teacher he meets in his life named Lokesvararaja. And he's so taken back by this teacher, he begins to praise his teacher. And the way it starts out is it's kind of talking about the qualities of the teacher and how wonderful his teacher is and what an impact he's had on his life. But then it begins to shift to the first person. And Dharmakara begins to say, when I become a Buddha, or when I become like my teacher, or when I start to emulate the things that my teacher lives every day. So it becomes from the third person to the first person, it becomes very personal. And then the other thing I like to mention is that when you chant, you're repeating the words of another. You're repeating the words of Dharmakara. But since it's in the first person, over time, you can think about it as your own personal expression of devotion to the Buddhist way. So the I is no longer Dharmakara. You begin to identify with the text in a very personal way. So that's the Sambutsuge. It's in praise of, of a teacher. And then the Jusege we chant, which is a little shorter, it is kind of a condensation of the 48 vows that Dharmakara makes after the Sambutsuge. So Dharmakara praises his teacher, and then he says, I want to be like my teacher. And then he gives 48 vows, like, unless everybody calls my name, or unless I'm not respected by all Buddhists, may I not attain enlightenment. So all the 48 vows are kind of in this format. If I don't achieve this, then I will not become awakened. And there's 48 of them. We also chant that. That's called the Shiju Hachigan, but it's in prose. It's repetitive because of the structure of the vows, but it's not a regular number of characters per line because it's narrative prose, not verse. So then after the 48 vows, we have the Jusege. And Jusege means repeated vows. So... Dharmakara goes back and out of these 48 vows, he kind of picks the three most important vows that he's going to emphasize. And he emphasizes the 12th about attaining enlightenment, 13th about saving all beings, and 17th about having his name or his teachings pervade the universe, his words. And so that's the 12th, 13th, and 17th vow. Uh, And in our service book, We have it in Romaji, which is Romanized English to read when we chant as English-speaking people. We also have it in Kanji with the Hiragana. Uh, They call this Futagana. The Kanji is there, but then there's the Japanese sound characters, too, if you want to uh, take a stab at that one day. And then we also have English translations of the text in prose. But we have to be careful when we read these texts. I've mentioned earlier, we shouldn't read them literally. This is poetry. It's like lyrics to a song. You know, I listen to Hey Jude. I listen to Stairway to Heaven. I listen to Let It Be. I don't take those songs literally. 
they're expressing a feeling or an emotion, or they're, they're trying to make me feel the heart of the person that created that work of art within myself. So you don't want to read these like we read the Bible. It's not literal. It's not historical. It's transformative. You could say it's wordplay. It's language on the edge of meaning. And the other thing that's kind of surprising, I think, to new people is Buddhists have never really chanted for knowledge. These aren't flashcards. We're not trying to memorize or learn in an academic sense. When you chant with a group, there's a feeling of oneness. We often say you want to chant with your ears, not with your mouth. So you really want to listen and blend in. And when you open your mouth, it'll feel as if all the voices in the room are coming out of your mouth when you open your mouth. And this is a ritual experience of oneness when we chant. So just like meditation, contemplation, visualization, we don't know what word to use. Sitting silently on a cushion is meditation, but chanting is also a form of meditation or contemplation or concentration or focus. You just say the next character and the next sound and you move on and you're in the moment. And as soon as you start to listen to yourself, you'll make a mistake or skip a line. You want to be immersive and relax, and it should be something you experience. So silently meditating in stillness is one approach. Meditating with sound is another. And meditating through motion is another. Walking meditation, yoga is meditation through motion. So there's these three forms. And a lot of times we do all three at our meditation services, sitting silently, chanting with sound, and walking meditation. And so this is an important aspect to the meditation service. You could think of your body, too, as being an instrument of propagation, that the teachings are resonating. Your body is a tuning fork that's in harmony with the ultimate reality of the universe. You're kind of compelled to react to the vibration of sound. And when you vocalize, you're making it real. You're going all in. It's almost like saying, I love you to someone. It may be understood, it may be the subtext to your relationship, but until you say it out loud, it doesn't really exist in a concrete form. You have to really step up to express yourself, and it becomes real in the moment it's verbalized. And so this is kind of the idea behind chanting. Uh, it's a very important aspect. It's complementary, mutually reinforcing. So don't worry so much about pitch. You know, it will come. There is a beat and there is a pitch, and if you just relax and experience it, it will, over time, have great meaning in your life. So I hope you are not too self-conscious or self-aware. Uh, this would be a good time not to be self-reflective. Just become one with the sound and become part of the group and practice with the Sangha. It's your membership into the group when you chant. Thank you very much. This concludes this podcast. I hope you feel grounded. I hope you feel different than when you began. And this feeling you have, I hope you take it with you out into your everyday life. It's important to develop these qualities in a controlled environment like this podcast. But the aim is for the effects to begin to bleed out into your everyday life naturally. My wife once sent me a meme on Facebook that said, yoga works, but only if you show up. And I feel that way about Buddhism and about meditation. It surely works, but only if you stick with it. And you have to get to the point where it becomes something natural and effortless in your life.
And if you have high expectations and you're trying to rush the process, you actually retard your ability to change over time. You don't want to grasp it. You don't want to hang on to it. You just want to experience it in a regular practice and integrate it into your everyday life. So thank you very much for coming. I will close with Kasho. Hands together and we will bow. This program was presented by Reverend John Turner, Executive Producers, Reverend Marvin Harada and Jim Scott, produced by the Buddhist Education Center of the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA, directed and engineered by Reverend John Turner, edited by Jim Scott. This program includes excerpts from Time Stood Still by Riley Lee, used with permission. Copyright 2019, Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved. For more information about this or other products, groups, and activities, BEC classes, or temple services, visit us on the web at ocbuddhist.org or at our online school, everydaybuddhist.org.